Section 10 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 10. Subsequent Events of 1861. Congress met in extra session on the 4th of July, 1861, the Republicans having control of both houses, besides being supported by some Democratic members who were urgent for the rigid prosecution of the war inaugurated by treason. Honorable Galusha A. Grow, a strong war man, was chosen Speaker of the House. On the 5th of July, President Lincoln communicated to Congress his first annual message. The President, in this communication, explained the circumstances which had preceded the bombardment of Fort Sumter in a most satisfactory and lucid manner, and thus set forth the course which he had endeavored to pursue toward the seceded states until their open act of bloodshed had compelled him to sterner measures. Quote, the policy chosen looked to the exhaustion of all peaceful measures before a resort to any stronger ones. It sought only to hold the public places and property not already wrested from the government, and to collect the revenue, relying for the rest on time, discussion, and the ballot box. It promised a continuance of the mails, at government expense, to the very people who were resisting the government, and it gave repeated pledges against any disturbances to any of the people, or any of their rights, of all that which a president might constitutionally and justifiably do in such a case. Everything was forborne, without which it was believed possible to keep the government on foot. End of quote. But this conciliatory policy had been in vain. The madness and treachery of the insurrectionary leaders had hurried on their wild schemes of empire until the monstrous crime of Sumter's bombardment had set at naught any further efforts for peace and conciliation. Said Mr. Lincoln, By the affair at Fort Sumter, with its surrounding circumstances, that point was reached. Then and thereby the assailants of the government began the conflict of arms, without a gun in sight or an expectancy to return their fire, save only the few in the fort sent to that harbor years before, for their own protection, and still ready to give that protection in whatever was lawful. In this act, discarding all else, they have forced upon the country the distinct issue, immediate dissolution or blood, and this issue embraces more than the fate of these United States. It presents to the whole family of man the question whether a constitutional republic or democracy, a government of the people, by the same people, can or cannot retain its territorial integrity against its own domestic foes. It presents the question whether discontented individuals, 
too few in numbers to control the administration according to the organic law in any case, can always, upon the pretenses made in this case, or any other pretenses, or arbitrarily without any pretenses, break up their government, and thus practically put an end to free government upon the earth. It forces us to ask, Is there in all republics this inherent and fatal weakness? Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people, or too weak to maintain its own existence? So viewing the issue, no choice was left but to call out the war power of the government, and so to resist the force employed for its destruction by force for its preservation. Passing swiftly and tersely over the secession of Virginia, and the circumstances of violence and deceit by which it had been effected, and exposing the unjustness and hollowness of Kentucky's neutrality, the President gave a brief sketch of the measures decided upon as necessary for the immediate work in hand. He then adverted to the abstract question of secession, denying with pungent logic, its chief claims. The pervading vein of this message, and, indeed, of every document of a similar character which he issued, is a vindication of certain sentiments for which every true, thorough believer in democracy should love and honor him. The great heart of the president never was attuned to the throbs of conventionality, nor to any particular sect or class. It ever beat in harmony and sympathy with the claims of humanity and enlightened progress. This message concluded with the following memorable words. It was with deepest regret that the executive found the duty of employing the war power, in defense of the government, forced upon him. He could but perform this duty or surrender the existence of the government. No compromise by public servants could, in this case, be a cure. Not that compromises are not often proper, but that no popular government can long survive a market precedent that those who carry an election can only save the government from immediate destruction by giving up the main point upon which the people gave the election. The people themselves and not their servants, can safely reverse their own deliberate decisions. As a private citizen, the executive could not have consented that these institutions shall perish. Much less could he, in betrayal of so vast and so sacred a trust as these free people had confided to him. He felt that he had no moral right to shrink, not even to count the chances of his own life, in what might follow. In full view of his great responsibility, he has, so far, done what he has deemed his duty. You will now, according to your own judgment, perform yours. He sincerely hopes that your views and your action may so accord with his as to assure all faithful citizens, who have been disturbed in their rights, of a certain and speedy restoration to them under the Constitution and the laws. And, having thus chosen our course, without guile and with pure purpose, let us renew our trust in God, 
and go forward without fear and with manly hearts. The action of the extra session, throughout, was in perfect accordance with the patriotic intentions of the executive. A resolution, offered by McClernand, of Illinois, passing the House by a large majority, by which the House pledged itself to vote any amount of money and any number of men which might be requisite to suppress the rebellion. The session closed on the 6th of August, after having taken the most energetic measures for the prosecution of the war, yet prudently avoided any action which would tend to divide or enfeeble the loyal sentiment of the nation. The people responded to the action of Congress with enthusiasm and a unanimity truly remarkable. The National Army moved from the Potomac, under the command of General McDowell, on the 16th of July, and the Battle of Bull Run commenced five days thereafter, resulting in the complete discomfiture of the raw federal forces, who fell back to Washington, a panic-stricken, disorganized mass or in flying fragments, after sustaining a loss of 480 killed and 1,000 wounded. Had the Confederates been cognizant of the completeness of this discomfiture, the capture of Washington must have followed with the certainty of destiny. But the hand on the national helm was that of a man who had hewed his path through the primeval forests of the Great West and breasted the current of the Father of Waters with a flat boatman's oar. And he did not quail from his responsible post when the other sailors on the deck were blanched with fear. He had one object, to subdue the South, and this was to be done through defeat as well as victory. He knew that he had a people at his back strong to second him in every attempt looking to this final result, and he went forward, quote, without fear and with a manly heart, end of quote. No one in the North was permanently discouraged by the disaster at Bull Run. The army was reorganized, increased in numbers and efficiency, and vigorous measures put underway to obtain a footing on the coast, as well as in the heart of the rebel states. On the 28th of August, Fort Hatteras fell into the possession of our forces, with all its guns and garrison. Port Royal followed, surrendering October 31st, thus giving to the Federal arms a foothold in South Carolina. Ship Island, lying between Mobile and New Orleans, was occupied December 3rd. The New Orleans expedition was then set on foot. The rebels also were driven out of western Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri. General Scott resigned his position on the 31st of October, and Major General McClellan was called to the command of our forces to prepare them for a fresh advance upon the rebel capital. Thus far, the government had avoided, in the prosecution of the war, as much as possible, any measures in regard to slavery which would serve to excite the prejudices of the border states. The Confiscation Act affecting only those slaves who should be required or permitted by their masters to render service to the rebellion. The same wise theory influenced the executive. 
On the 27th of May, 1861, General Butler originated the term of contraband for slaves coming as fugitives to his camp. The question, what shall we do with them, was a puzzler for a considerable time. But Butler began to increase his stock of contrabands in a quiet way. And, not only that, he set them to work for the federal government. The policy of the War Department was exceedingly ambiguous and tender upon this subject from the outset. But it never, for a moment, dreamed of a rendition of slaves, thus coming into our hands, to their rebel masters. And, before the close of August, our policy had so broadened out that the Secretary of War instructed General Butler to receive all fugitives coming into his lines, whether of loyal or disloyal masters, it being proposed, at the same time, that a record of such fugitives should be kept, in order to compensate loyal owners at the close of hostilities. General Fremont was then in command of the Department of Missouri, and his remarkable order declaring, quote, The property, real and personal, of all persons in the state of Missouri, who shall take up arms against the United States, or who shall be directly proven to have taken an active part with their enemies in the field, is declared to be confiscated to the public use, and their slaves, if any they have, are hereby declared free men. End of quote. Was issued August 31st. This was, of course, transcending the authority then delegated to General Fremont, or proper for him to exercise. Congress alone could order such a decree. President Lincoln regarded it in this light. Indeed, he regarded it as exceeding the authority vested in himself by Congress, and made haste to rectify the error, which was working mischief everywhere throughout the border states. On the 11th of September, he accordingly wrote to General Fremont, ordering a modification to the objectionable clause so as to make it conform to the provisions of the Confiscation Act of August 6, 1861. Time has since proven the wisdom of Mr. Lincoln's course upon this exceedingly difficult and tender subject. Efforts were continually made, from many quarters, to induce the President to depart from his gradual and progressive policy, progressive as the war seemed to demand and compel. The great majority of his party friends desired him at once not only to proclaim the emancipation of slaves of rebels, but also to put arms in their hands and employ them as soldiers. But the cautious executive was not to be shaken from the policy which his vested powers and the then existing circumstances imposed upon him. His actions said as much as this. Gentlemen, I am not a leader of the people in these great questions. I am but an instrument in their hands. If they require, for instance, an emancipation proclamation from me, they need only to speak their demands through the action of Congress, and they will find in me an instrument to execute their desires. I would not shape public opinion but will be obedient to its will in this tremendous crisis of the Republic. 
Thus, by not transcending, I need never retract. What I do is indubiable, irrevocable. Most conclusively was the chief magistrate's course sustained by the great majority of the people, and approved by time, and the prescience which governed his actions seems to us now as one of the most remarkable evidences of his fitness for the crisis. Was the rendition of Mason and Slidell inconsistent with this directing, dependent policy? We do not think it was. To refuse that rendition, a refusal which such men as the secessionist leader, Mr. Vallandigham, indignantly and piously advocated, would have brought upon our burdened shoulders the war power of Great Britain, probably that of France also. The candid, second sober thought of the people saw this, and approved the action of their government, at the same time hoarding up the insult of Britain in their heart of hearts, an insult to one day be wiped away, perhaps in blood. The message which Mr. Lincoln transmitted to Congress at its regular session in December 1861 was a document veined by the wise conservatism which had distinguished his former papers. In alluding to the policy to be adopted to secure the suppression of the rebellion, he mentioned that he had been careful that the inevitable conflict necessary for the accomplishment of that purpose should not degenerate into a remorseless revolutionary contest. In every document which, as executive, he officially promulgated, as well as in his language upon the leading exciting questions of the day or hour, his personal opinions were not left a subject of ambiguity. And his personal views, as expressed alike in his letter to Fremont, modifying the Emancipation Clause of that General's order, and in his letter to Governor McGoffin of Kentucky, refusing to remove the federal troops from that state, and rebuking the unpatriotic demands of that official. In everything, and at every time, his views have been of a strong, judicious, exalted nature, and they never failed to receive the respect and hearty support of his fellow countrymen. A few weeks at most served to show the public the wisdom and justice of every act where the President was called to exercise his supreme functions as Commander-in-Chief and as Executor of the Laws. End of Section 10